All right, good afternoon, everyone, and welcome to the October 10th, 2023 Major Mondays webinar coming at you live on a Tuesday. Uh, today, we're talking about the impact of civil cases on workers' comp claims. Uh, we're looking at investigation, leverage, and the global defense model. Uh, here I am. As always, it's a live question and answer session. So if you have any questions, just feel free to post them in the uh, GoToWebinar box. And at the conclusion, we'll take a look at them and address them then. Um, for those of you who tried to tune in uh, last month and um, you, you might have seen that the webinar was canceled, uh, I do apologize for that. There ended up being a scheduling conflict that we really couldn't fix. Um, ideally, that will never be the case again going forward, but I do appreci appreciate your patience and uh, tuning back in for this month after our little uh, brief hiatus. So when does a worker's comp claim overlap with a civil action? Well, there are really four primary scenarios that we're going to talk about. Um, number one, the worker was injured by a third party, brings a third party action, very common. Uh, number two, the worker sues the employer directly for an intentional wrong uh, or in a strict liability scenario like the scaffold law in New York. Uh, much less common intentional wrong is both in New York and in New Jersey. That's the standard in both states. Uh, in both states, it is very, very difficult to prove. Uh, New Jersey has the Laidlow and Millicent standard, and um, New York has the Section 11 and Section 29.6 protections. So uh, actually suing the employer directly for an intentional wrong is uh, somewhat uncommon. I would also note um, that if you are the carrier and you're insuring the employer, uh, and there's a separate, you know, CGL carrier on the hook, you actually still do have reimbursement rights in both New York and New Jersey from your insured's CGL carrier. Just one thing I would point out is that every insurance policy on earth uh, disclaims coverage for intentional acts. Uh, in fact, policies in New Jersey have included a specific endorsement for the laid low and Section 8 standards uh, disclaiming coverage. So, you know, the recovery prospects might be minimal. Um, and obviously, if you're uh, self-insured, you know, it's going to be you on, on both ends, both in the civil case and the workers' comp case. Um, but, yes, you're entitled to, quote, unquote, reimburse yourself. Um, third scenario, the employer is impleted as a defendant in the third party action. This is going to show up as indemnification or contribution. Um, there's contractual indemnification claims, very, very common in contracting uh, cases and subcontracts. Um, or there's common law indemnification. In New York, you get the protections of Section 11 and 29.6 unless there is a grave injury. The employer cannot be impleted unless the claimant has one of the qualifying injuries. Um, but this is another way where you might see the insured get um, dragged into a civil case. Or fourth, and, and my absolute favorite, direct subrogation, which is serving the statutory notice under Section 29.2 or Section 40F in New Jersey, and actually suing the third party yourself while a workers' comp claim is pending. Why that is my absolute favorite, well, we will get into in just a moment. So how do I know there's a civil case? Uh, well, this is one of those things that, that really kind of drives me up a wall um, because there seems to be a uh, general lack of awareness uh, when these civil actions are filed because nobody's keeping us in the loop. Uh, and there's really not in our standard claims handling practices any prompts for us to, you know, do this, to look into it. You know, we might have um, an, an initial claim investigation, but you, I can tell you you're um, – ordinary claims handling professional is not routinely jumping on NICEF or e-courts in New Jersey and searching the claimant's name just to see if anything pops. 
Now, our attorneys um, do do that in this office. Uh, it is one of our defense methods. We They have all been trained on how to do it. It is, it is a standard next action. But for claims being handled outside of this office, I do strongly recommend doing it. So easiest way to find out if there's a civil case, just ask. Um, you know, generally, if there's strong third-party liability, they will retain an attorney. Uh, if not, you know, chances are they have an attorney in the workers' comp claim. There's absolutely nothing wrong and no harm done with just picking up the phone and saying, hey, so-and-so, does your guy intend on filing a third-party action? Great, thank you. Uh, or shooting an email to that effect. Um, you can also get an ISO report, which can show um, claims made to carriers uh, that may or may not have been placed into litigation. So when might something pop on an ISO but not in a civil docket? A policy maximum that's really quite small, you know, uh, like a $25,000 policy limit with significant damages in the um, workers' comp claim, and the adverse carrier says, I don't want to deal with this. I'm going to spend more litigating than just tendering the policy. Here's $25,000, and maybe a civil action never gets filed. That happens. It's not going to show up in a docket. It may show up, and it should show up, on an ISO report because the carrier with that $25,000 policy is going to report um, the claim being filed. So there are ones that would show up on an ISO and not necessarily in a civil docket. Um, If we're approaching the statute of limitations and liability is strong, uh, chances are the case has been filed. So if you're coming up on the two-year mark in New Jersey or the three-year mark in New York, um, it is very, very likely that if they, you know, say it's a rear-end motor vehicle accident with significant damages, it is very, very likely that the action has already been filed. Uh, so what are our resources to find that out? Uh, well, I'm going to share these with you, and if anyone wants the specific links for them, uh, feel free to shoot me an, uh, an email after this webinar. I'd be happy to provide them. They are quite useful, and I'm going to talk about how these are useful in other ways. But what are our resources here? Well, uh, Web Civil Supreme and NICEF, the New York State Court Electronic Filing System. Why do we have two? Well, cases that do not have future appearances on them or are strictly e-filed or, you know, the only thing that's been filed at the moment is a complaint and no answer has even been filed, sometimes those will only be in NICEF and they will actually not show up in e-courts. Sometimes the docket number will have an E after it, you know, 12345-2023E. So there are things that you would find in NICEF for electronically filed newer cases that might not pop in Web Civil Supreme. Uh, conversely, Web Civil Supreme might have cases that are not in NICEF, uh, potentially older cases or um, any other case that maybe is in a smaller claims court uh, that might not show up on NICEF. So we do like to check both. I would also note that uh, one thing that annoys me about NICEF is it doesn't show future appearances. Web Civil Supreme does give that to you, so you can see, you know, you'll click on Show Appearances, and you can see if a settlement conference is coming up, uh, or a status conference, preliminary conference, whatever the case may be. New Jersey, we got just one. There is a public access website for it. You do not need an attorney login for any of these. Um, but New Jersey, we got just one. It's the eCourts uh, Civil Case Jacket, they call it. For federal court, you're looking at the public access to court electronic record system, a.k.a. PACER. PACER does charge you for searches and um, per page. So uh, you just got to be careful with uh, how much stuff you're accessing on PACER. It does warn you about the cost on the bottom of the screen, but it can get out of hand quickly. If you decide, I would like this summary judgment motion in my claim file, it seems helpful, and you print 3,000 pages, um, 
it's gonna you're gonna get hit with a bill that's a little surprising. So just watch out for that. When might you end up in Pacer? Well, uh, either the case arises under federal law, you know, it's a violation of some federal statute, uh, you know, maybe uh, Americans with disabilities or um, you know employment discrimination, something of that nature. Or uh, the more common one, damages are over $75,000 and you have diversity of citizenship between the parties, meaning no plaintiff is from the same state as any defendant. If you have an interstate accident, you know, with a um, New York trucking company and a New Jersey resident and the guy has catastrophic injuries, there is a good chance it's going to be filed in New Jersey District Court and you would find it on PACER in that case, not e-courts. So what are some of our methods of investigation? Well, we are not totally without tools here. So many carriers have internal SI units. I know this is going to sound like one of those, um, you know, cheesy cable television shows, uh, you know, special investigations unit, but yeah, that that is actually what it is. Um, so many uh, carriers do have internal SI units or they choose to retain an investigative company. If anyone wants recommendations on companies that prepare good and thorough reports and do a good job, again, you can just feel free to shoot me an email after the webinar. I'd be happy to share some names with you. Um, so a formal SIU narrative uh, is recommended in claims with catastrophic exposure. Uh, sometimes we get, uh, especially in New Jersey cases, we'll get something called an AOE-COE report. Uh, arising out of employment or in the course of employment, you know, that'll just gather basic facts about the accident, but sometimes you'll find little kernels in there uh, about potential third-party liability. So why are these uh, useful, uh, the AOE-COE reports or the specific SIU narrative? Well, contemporaneous witness statements and gathering of evidence is strongly recommended as opposed to simply waiting. You know, if you have uh, an investigator going out there within a week of the accident, and asking, you know, the, the foreman on the job site, hey, did that guy show up to work that on time that day? Were they actually on the roster to work? Can I see the log books? You know, uh, have there been any accidents on this site recently? Can you get, can you produce copies of the insurance agreements between the parties or the subcontracts exchanged? All of that is way, way, way easier to get when the accident is fresh in the minds of um, the parties that are on the site. So I do strongly recommend a formal SIU narrative, especially in cases with catastrophic exposure. Um, I would also consider serving what's called a litigation hold, even if it's to your own insured. Um, you know, they do have a duty under the insurance agreement. It's, you know, one of the preconditions to you guys covering them uh, to cooperate in good faith with any investigation you make. Uh, spoiler alert, they do not know what that means. So... Uh, cooperating in good faith doesn't mean your insured is going to do everything, anything and everything to preserve every possible bit of evidence. Uh, so it is strongly recommended. If there's video of the accident, you know, somebody should be preserving that somewhere. If the claims professional is obtaining it, it should be uploaded into the claim file. Or if not, you know, there should be a letter going to the insured that says, hey, put this on a flash drive, put it aside or, you know, the warning signs that were out when the claimant slipped and fell. Can you put those aside? Or the vehicle that was kept in the accident. Can you stash that in a garage somewhere? Uh, a litigation hold notice to either the at-fault parties or potentially even to your insured can preserve evidence that might otherwise get away from you. Um, so I do recommend doing that. Spoliation of evidence is both potentially fatal to liability proofs, 
We did just have a case, and uh, if you are the handling adjuster on that case, my sincere apologies. Uh, I won't use any names, but we did just have a case where there was video of the accident, and then there wasn't. <laughs> and by the time we actually got to the point of filing the case and deciding we wanted to subrogate it, we had screen grabs from the uh, accident video, but had to go in front of the judge and shrug and say, yeah, there was a video, but the insured doesn't have it, and we never put it in the claim file, so it's gone now. Um, that is potentially fatal as to liability, uh, and they, it's not really a counterclaim specifically in New York. Uh, courts have kind of really frowned on including it as a counterclaim. That does not stop the defendants from doing it, but spoliation of evidence can be a counterclaim at trial, uh, and it can actually result in some evidence getting precluded or disallowed or not considered by the jury. So I really do recommend getting the investigation right earlier. Um, initial employee and employer statements uh, when the claim is opened can be more in-depth. So uh, I'm sure everyone has seen at the beginning of a claim file, you know, a little note that says phone call to EE or phone call to ER. And it gives them basic fact. It lists like basic facts that the employer representative or the employee gave them about how the accident happened. You can ask for more than what just happens in that. You know, you can include questions of, you know, was there a janitorial service on the on the site that day that mopped the floors or things of that nature? You know, it doesn't have to be confined to a few quick questions to uh, avoid inconveniencing everyone. So just something to consider. What kind of information are we looking for? These are just some suggestions. They're by no means comprehensive. Construction accidents, I would say gather all the contracts, subcontracts, coverages, and work records. Uh, you know, they are supposed to, if you promise to name another party as an additional insured on your policy, I guarantee you that that same contract that requires that additional insured coverage also says that they have to produce proof of that coverage uh, within a certain amount of time. So somewhere out there, somebody has copies of the coverages, and you would want to see who has additional insured status and who doesn't. Who agreed to indemnify or hold harmless who? Uh, you know, those Accord Certificate of Liability Insurance um, slips, they are helpful um, to show who got coverage and who might be an additional insured. They are not dispositive in either New York or New Jersey. They are not proof that the coverage was obtained. They are just suggestive that it was obtained. So uh, this is something that I would actually like to get if I'm going out to a construction accident, is copies of the policies if possible. I'd want to see the log books for who was on the site. I want to know about any video or surveillance or accidents. Um, but we want to get the specific facts right as well. Was any equipment involved or should it have been involved? You know, does this particular um, bit of work usually come with a safety harness? And then for some reason, either the claimant was never provided it or they chose not to wear it. Wear it. Uh, along that same line, any fault on the part of the worker? Uh, who else can be blamed potentially, if anyone? You know, did the uh, concrete and rebar uh, subcontractor on the site who has agreed to indemnify everyone in the chain above them, you know, did they really not put together, you know, the concrete reinforcement correctly and then the fall flo floor falls out from under the claimant and that's how they get hurt. Um, gather videos, like I just mentioned, surveillance, uh, photographs, uh, that stuff does have a tendency to disappear. So I would get it and hang on to it and put it in your claim file. The personnel file from the insured, uh, what do I mean by personnel file? The HR records, you know, the job application from the claimant, uh, any disciplinary history, uh, anything like that. 
um, plus a prior accident history for the worker, the job site, the specific job being worked on at that time, and the employer. I want to know if the employer has a history of this. I want to know if this is a particularly cursed job location. And I want to know if this worker, you know, tends to be clumsy. Um, any potential implication of part two employer's liability policy? Is there a duty to defend or indemnify your insured in a civil action? Uh, do you have to make a written coverage determination, uh, disclaiming coverage ASAP? Or is a reservation of rights notice required? Um, investigative companies will often ask for any directives for the SIU narrative. Um, you know, tragically, I do not see a lot of carriers or self-insurance taking advantage of this. It's sort of just please prepare standard SIU narrative and they go out and do what they do. You can choose to um, narrow the scope of the investigation or enhance it, and you can send them a list of questions that you want answered specifically. And believe it or not, um, the individual investigator will usually appreciate the instruction. So uh, if you're going out and getting an SIU narrative, I would strongly suggest providing a written list of questions. Even if they're boilerplate for the specific case type, it is better than just, you know, please prepare narrative. What leverage can we get from a civil civil case? Well, subrogation notices, also known as the one-year letter, can light a fire and posture you for success later on. Uh, what do I mean by that? Well, Section 40F and Section uh, 29.2 in New York do permit us to sue in the shoes of the injured worker after a year goes by without filing the case. Um, well, guess what? If we actually settle the case earlier or we can force them to settle the case earlier, we have credit and offset rights earlier. And that means paying benefits at a one-third rate earlier. And that means the claimant's paying out of pocket for medical treatment and asking to be reimbursed for it earlier on in the case. And as I'm sure you can see where I'm going with this, that's pretty powerful leverage for them to settle the case sooner than, you know, three years dragging on after the accident. Within reason, obviously, surgery would delay litigation of permanency or things of that nature. But uh, you can really set yourself up for success by prompting the third-party attorney to file instead of sitting around for the three-year SOL. Um, there is also significant leverage that comes with having subrogation rights. Uh, I'll give you a perfect example. Hey, carrier, uh, liability on this case is absolute garbage. And, uh, you, you know, if you hold out demanding your full reimbursement, uh, you're not going to see a dime on this. My client's just going to walk away from the settlement or it's going to get dismissed on summary judgment. I guarantee you, if you've tried to recover a lien, you have heard all of this posturing before. Um, well, guess what the subrogation notice allows you to do? Hey, uh, I appreciate that you think you're going to have difficulty proving your case. Uh, if you're thinking about discontinuing it, can you let me know? Because then I'll just step in and settle with the defendants for 50% of what they're offering you and I'll get my full reimbursement back instead of one-third of the settlement. Um, so having that subrogation notice and being able to say, no, I'm not going to compromise. I have the right to prosecute this case and comp compromise it directly. Uh, I don't need to send you a dime. I don't need to consult you. Um, I am not going to waive any portion of my reimbursement. Um, you know, and if your client is not on board with that, then, you know, let me know. If they're going to, you know, step out of the case, fine, I'll step into it. That is huge leverage. Um, there's also useful knowledge that comes from the civil dockets. Financial recovery from another source. We uh, we had a case, you know, as you know, uh, recovering indemnity benefits in uh, New York. If you get some other form of income while the while the carrier is paying indemnity benefits, 
and you fail to disclose that income, that is problematic, and that is potentially per se Section 114A fraud. We found a case where um, the claimant's wife had actually filed suit for an injury she was involved in, and the claimant asserted a claim for loss of consortium on that accident. Uh, on that accident, it wasn't even the claimant's name on the, you know, primarily in the docket. It was, you know, the claimant's wife and then, uh, you know, the claimant as spouse of the wife with a loss of consortium claim. Um, we are currently litigating the issue of whether uh, the settlement from that case is precluding the uh, claimant's right to continued benefits because they got paid, even if it was just 10 percent of the settlement on a loss of consortium claim. Um, they should not have been receiving indemnity benefits without disclosing that to us. So financial recovery from another source is potentially huge. Discovery filed in the civil docket. Um, there is no requirement that discovery be filed in the civil docket. It doesn't always show up. Um, where will it show up? Well, discovery motions saying so-and-so hasn't provided discovery, uh, or very, very commonly sum summary judgment motions are going to attach the claimant's transcript. But Discovery in the civil docket, we can find out about uh, contemporaneous treatment. We can find out about the work history. We can look at the uh, claimant's testimony to see if it syncs up with as, you know, as to how the accident happened. Uh, even if it's not filed in the docket, there's nothing stopping you from simply subpoenaing it from the attorney's office. They will um, refuse to turn over any communications with their client, as they should. Uh, yes, those are confidential. Um, but there is absolutely absolutely nothing stopping you from getting the discovery exchange in that case, provided, you know, uh, it is neither privileged nor confidential. Prior or subsequent accidents, also very, very helpful. We were able to find out one of those in a Connecticut case with a New York civil action. Uh, Third-party settlement, credit and offset rights are a possible Section 29.5 violation. Again, we have another case uh, where a claimant filed and discontinued as a pro se litigant, uh, the third party action, you know, all in the time span of 30 days. They filed the case and then they stipped to discontinue it uh, with prejudice. And we were never told that they filed it and we were never consulted, nor was our consent asked for on the um, discontinuance with prejudice. And, you know, if a Section 29.5 violation is found, the claimant will lose the right to future medical and indemnity. So, that is potentially huge leverage just by doing a docket search. Grounds for fraud, uh, again, inconsistent testimony, failure to disclose income while collecting indemnity benefits, uh, anything of that nature. So if a global settlement is feasible, more on this in a moment, this can be a great way to move a stagnant case uh, or close a worker's comp claim far earlier than it otherwise would have resolved. Reimbursement and offset rights, we talked about this, drive the case value down. They result in less treatment since the claimant is footing the bill, uh, and we can move the case toward closure with reduced benefits uh, or the incentive for the claimant of a large recovery. You know, if if we're holding up our consent to settle, saying, you know, you're not going to see that $100,000 uh, payday you were looking for because we're disputing the issue of this lien reimbursement, alternatively, you can, can, you can accept the entire $100,000. You just got to close out your workers' comp claim. Um, you know, most of them have uh, dollar signs in their eyes at that stage in the litigation, and they'll bite on it. Uh, so a lingering third-party recovery that is significant is actually pretty strong leverage uh, just by negotiating the lien reimbursement from it. So what is global defense? Uh, I like to talk about it in two contexts. Uh, I will tell you that 
the primary context that this is talked about in the insurance industry is when the employer is sued civilly and there is a GL policy at issue and a simultaneous workers' comp claim where there's a workers' comp slash EL policy at issue. And what happens is uh, the same attorney's office defends under both the GL and the WC policy, you know, um, on both fronts, in front of the workers' comp board or workers' comp court and in front of the civil court. And it makes it much, much easier if you're keeping it under one roof um, to figure out the status of discovery, you know, avoid any potential prejudicial actions, keep yourself apprised of what's going on. So global defense generally refers to in the insurance industry, you know, uh, defending the employer under both the GL and workers' comp on two different, in two different venues. Um, I also use it in the context of pursuing subrogation and reimbursement rights from a third-party action. So uh, this is the concept of syncing defense efforts across both workers' compensation claims and the civil action. Ideally, the same attorney office defends both the workers' comp case and the civil action for the reasons I just discussed. Uh, if not, you know, the carrier should authorize counsel to speak with one another, and counsel should agree on confidentiality, uh, you know, making sure that nothing is exchanged outside of um, the communications between the two of them. Uh, always share findings and significant developments uh, in cases where, you know, there's a GL case going on. Uh, I will, on occasion, shoot an email to the uh, employer's GL attorney and say, Hey, just FYI, you might, you might remember we were litigating whether the back is causally related. Well, it just got added, you know, sorry, man, you're probably going to get dinged for those damages in your case. Um, so sharing findings and significant developments is very helpful. This is not just between the attorneys. Uh, if the employer is the defendant in both a civil action and workers comp claim, considering copying in, uh, GL and workers comp claim professionals on status updates. The only thing I will point out there is just beware of the so-called wall between workers' comp and general liability. Uh, you know, typically just because um, two, the workers' comp carrier and the GL carrier might fall under one large umbrella carrier doesn't mean they are the same entity. Um, so very frequently you will see the um, general liability adjuster ask for a HIPAA release in order to disclose the file. That is legit. That is safe. Um, you know, there is something of a wall in between workers' comp and GL. So just make sure you're navigating that when the time comes. Uh, similarly, in uh, subrogation actions, consider copying the subrogation professionals on a workers' comp case update if there's a potential third-party recovery. Believe me, they will appreciate it. If you tell them, hey, uh, those awards of temporary disability or total disability we were litigating, the board established them. So, you know, you guys are probably going to end up paying, you know, a back 12 grand for this period of disability. Well, now the subrogation professional knows the lien is going up by $12,000 probably within the next two weeks. Um, that is valuable information in case there's a settlement conference going on in the third-party action. So, uh, believe me, there is no such thing as... Um, oversharing when it comes to subrogation and workers' comp defense efforts. You're also not dealing with the wall I just talked about with GL and workers' comp. Um, you know, if the carrier is both chasing the lien and covering its exposure, uh, that is the same carrier for all intents and purposes. So there's nothing wrong with sharing information on that front. Um, docket checks and requests for updates. Again, you can just ask the attorneys what's going on. Uh, should be regular, not just once. Uh, our internal practice is to do it every 60 days. Why? Well, uh, a civil action might not have been filed when you did the initial search. 
maybe now it's since has been because it's been six months. Or uh, maybe, you know, the claimant's deposition has happened in the interim, and now there's an SJ motion pending. You never know what's going to show up in the docket. So it's not a one-and-done thing you do at the outset of your case. It should be a repeated effort over the course of defending the case. Just some quick notes on applying the leverage. I kind of talked about this already, but uh, I want you guys to think about the power of credit and offset rights. So if the claimant is getting $900 weekly, third-party action settles, and some money ends up in their pocket, think about how powerful that is. That $900 weekly is going to turn into $300 for the foreseeable future or however long it takes to burn through the amount of the credit. That is the case in both New York and New Jersey. It is very, very difficult to live on one-third temporary disability payments. That is an ideal time to reach out and say, hey, um, you know, you can try to scrape by with $300 a week. Alternatively, here's $100,000 to get rid of your case. How does that sound? Uh, it is actually pretty attractive leverage. Um, similarly, as to medical treatment, you know, the claimant is supposed to pay out of pocket and submit periodic requests for reimbursement. Uh, most of them don't know that, and you're going to start objecting to the treatment bills with CA.1s in New York, and the board is going to start resolving in your favor on, you know, pursuant to matter of Bissell versus town of Amherst. Um, and the claimant is going to wonder why they kept getting, they keep receiving these bills. So paying for treatment out of pocket, well, you're going to notice the gravy train of treatment that is just being done to, you know, bolster the value of the workers comp case. Um, that gravy train is going to come to a halt. So um, it's just something to keep, uh, keep in mind, the power of these credit and offset rights. It doesn't just reduce your exposure. It postures you for settlement. Um, make sure to get consent and settlement issues correct. I'm going to talk about that in a sec. Um, get to the adverse carrier first. What do I mean by that? Well, we talked about the subrogation notices and the potential to actually settle with them directly if you have a um, particularly recalcitrant third-party attorney who's not work working with you. Also, in New Jersey, uh, Section 40D requires notice of the lien on uh, the defendants or their insurance carriers. And if you actually do that notice via certified mail return receipt requested or personal service, prior to settlement of the third-party action, believe it or not, it obligates them to pay you before paying dollar one to the petitioner. It's literally in the statute that they have to reach out to you and say, hey, what is the lien? And then they reach out to third-party counsel and say, what are your costs? And then you tell them what your reimbursement amount is, and they're supposed to pay that in full before they send any money to the petitioner. Yes, this issue can be and has been litigated, and we have gotten the entirety of a third-party settlement, even when the third-party attorney refused to compromise because we were able to prove the Section 40D notice was timely served. Uh, finally, withholding consent to settle uh, while workers' comp issues resolve. You know, hey, I'd love to send you my written consent to settle, but there's $10,000 out there in awards that nobody knows what's going to happen with. I would love to just, you know, maybe do a stipulation about those so I can know what my lien is and finally consent to your settlement. Um, you know, you can always get creative with it and withholding this consent within reason, you know, obviously if you delay for six months, they're just going to file for a 29-5 compromise order, which is a headache you don't want to deal with. Um, but within reason, you can, you know, sort of withhold consent strategically to get more favorable terms. So what is the global settlement? Uh, well, this is the most effective way to reduce your exposure. Uh, global settlements, well, we consider using all or part of our subrogation rights to negotiate a more favorable resolution of the workers' comp claim. 
It is not always feasible depending upon the facts. Uh, perhaps the lien is too small and the exposure is too big, uh, or maybe it's a New Jersey Section 20. Um, so it's not going to apply in every case, but when it does, you have these credit and offset rights you can hang your hat on as well to say, hey, that permanency award isn't worth what you think it's worth. It's worth one-third of what you think it's worth. Uh, so we'll pay you that up front, plus, you know, another 15 grand for medical treatment, and we'll fund that with a waiver of the lien just to make it go away. Um, that is uh, very, very useful and can move up settlement of the case substantially. Uh, this typically takes the form of a full or partial lien waiver on the third-party settlement in exchange for a, quote-unquote, zero-dollar workers' comp settlement. Yeah, I just mentioned there's no Section 40 rights on Section 20 settlements in New Jersey, uh, and no judge in New Jersey is going to approve a Section 20 just on the basis of a global settlement agreement. There needs to actually be disputed and litigated issues in the case. Um, that said, you can totally waive your lien to satisfy your future share of uh, litigation costs on a Section 22 OAS and then pay nothing going forward. That's the functional equivalent of a full and final closure where you're not paying any fresh money into the case. That is totally legit. That is totally something you can do. Um, possible HIMP-1 exposure, you know, watch out for settling on a Section 32 where you accept injury sites just to get the thing done. Uh, HIMP exposure, we've talked about this in other webinars. That's where the claimant's health insurer uh, sends you a bill saying, hey, comp should have paid for this treatment. You know, if there's CA.1s out there for the currently litigated injury site of the foot, don't just accept the foot to put the 32 through um, because you're opening yourself up for a world, world of hurt when that HIMP-1 bill comes through the door. Uh, intercompany loss transfer and lien rights on Section 32 settlements. We like to throw in the Section 32 agreement that we're seeking loss transfer. And if the adverse carrier doesn't pay us, claimant agrees that this is not a payment in lieu of first-party benefits, such that, such that the carrier has a full lien on the Section 32 uh, that means that if you don't get back the 50000 via loss transfer, the claimant has agreed to reimburse you from $1, notwithstanding the 50k carve-out. That is legit. It is something you consist on, uh, can insist on. Finally, litigation of consent issues and possible Section 29.5 violations. Again, 29.5 is a New York-only thing. There is no requirement for written consent in New Jersey. They are required to actually reimburse your lien in the proper amount, though, so it doesn't mean settlements happening around you. They are supposed to consult you first. Best practices, I'll blow through these because I can tell you I have definitely been rambling for quite a bit. Um, so global settlement best practices, always have an agreement in writing, preferably signed by the third-party attorney. Verify the information. How do you do this? Well, you get before and after closing statements, a proposed closing statement, and the final version filed with the Office of Court Administration. You make sure the numbers didn't change between the two. Uh, stay consistent across both cases. What do I mean by that? If you're doing a global settlement, the documents should mutually reference each other. The consent letter should say, hey, a Section 32 is pending. And the Section 32 should say, hey, there's a consent letter, and we adopt the terms of it. Uh, know the reimbursement calculation and offset rights. Be clear, thorough, explicit, and specific. Any ambiguities will always be resolved against the carrier. So if you're getting creative with future credit and offset rights, you need to spell that out. Um, have a contingency for worst-case scenarios. You know, if a uh, claimant backs out of the settlement and this constitutes a 29.5 violation, we have prevailed on that argument before. Uh, you know, just be prepared to step in with your credit and offset rights if the matter doesn't settle. Uh, harmonize the timing of both settlements, you know, see if you can get the Section 32 approval hearing to sync up 
with settlement of the civil case. When in doubt, reserve rights. If you're not sure if you should reserve rights, there's never harm in reserving them. Make non-compliance equal revocation. If you don't send me the final closing statement so I can confirm all the numbers, then you don't have my consent and you have now violated 29.5. Also totally legit. Also something that we've litigated and prevailed upon. Um, be prepared to walk away, especially in low value cases with loss transfer and watch out for that 50K carve out in MVA cases. Why do I say be prepared to walk away in loss transfer cases? Well, if liability is clear and loss transfer applies, that's potentially dollar for dollar. So if this is just, you know, um, lower back sprain and strain and your exposure is never going to go past 25 grand, why are you paying anything for a section 32? You know, if you have the case exposure reserved for $25,000 and you've paid 10,000, you know, why would you bother? You have up to $50,000 in dollar for dollar reimbursement via loss transfer. So why would you pay something you're never going to get back with the section 32? So especially if it's just a lower back sprain and strain, the third party action is going to be barred if they don't have over $50,000 in damages thanks to the no fault law. So you're never going to see that money back. Just be prepared to walk away if the terms aren't favorable is what I'm getting at. Um, we have the power to walk away if we serve proper subrogation notices. We talked about that. Hey, I'll settle with the adverse carrier directly if you won't play ball with me. Uh, or the money may not make sense depending on the future exposure and recovery. I just talked about that. And last thing I'm going to point out for the day. Race judicata and collateral estoppel. So these are um, terms in the legal world uh, about how a prior judgment can preclude litigation of that exact same issue. Uh, this is the concept that findings by the New York Workers' Comp Board or the New Jersey Workers' Comp Courts can resolve issues in the civil case. Common scenarios include causal relationship of injury sites, uh, employer fault in the accident, medical necessity of the treatment, the liable carrier and or employer, claimant's commission of fraud, etc. Uh, what's a good example of this? Hey, the back should not count in civil case damages because uh, it has been attributed to a prior accident per a workers' comp claim finding. There has been an adjudication of no causal relationship of the back to this claim. Now, in New York, uh, as the uh, deck continues to get stacked against insurance carriers, there was some unfortunate uh, legislation signed into law for 2023 Workers' Comp Law Section 11.2. I wanted to put this on everyone's radar. Uh, it says no collateral estoppel effect for board findings except as to the issue of employer-employee relationship. Relationship. So that um, causal relationship of the back issue I just recommended uh, or referenced, that is uh, out. You cannot go in the civil case and say, I should not have to pay for damages to the back because, look, the board said it's not related. Uh, there is no race judicata or collateral estoppel effect for board determinations unless it's a determination of this guy worked for this employer. All right, that was a lot of content. Um, so let's uh, let's see if we got any questions. Uh, and if not, we'll wrap up for this month. Let's see. Oh, wait, I always do this. I always open up attendees. All right, I do not see any questions. So, again, if you tuned in last month and you missed uh, the webinar because we had to cancel it, I do apologize for that scheduling conflict. Other than that, thank you for tuning in this month. I'll see you next month. Happy Halloween, everybody.